Hey, you guys, this is Rob Liefeld, and we are about to embark on another episode of Rob Observations. Rob Observations is where I share my passion of comic books, all things comic books. Sometimes they pertain to pop culture. They always pertain to pop culture because the world has become one giant comic book playground. I uh, began comic books, the obsession with comic books, in the very early 1970-74-75. It became uh, an obsession. I have consumed them ever since. It has been fun seeing how they change the world. The great thing about comic books changing the world and being a part of it so, for so long is I have watched the architects behind the scenes shape the comic books and the events and the characters and the creators that have put these all together. And when I speak of architects, I am speaking of the editors and chiefs behind the scenes who have really defined every era of comic books, starting with the great Stan Lee. So today we are discussing editor in chief, the editor in chief position, editors in chief, the EIC, the top brass over many generations, mostly Marvel, some at DC I'm going to cover, but I, you, you will come away knowing 100% where I stand as who I believe the greatest editor in chief uh, of my generation, of my lifetime is. Of course, Stan Lee is, uh, is, is never going to be um, outdone, but he had left the position uh, much sooner than my career, my, my actual fan engagement with comics uh, arrived. He had uh, seated the top editor-in-chief position to a gentleman named Roy Thomas, who did a great job guiding what would be the latter half of the Silver Age of comics, which would be the late 60s throughout the very early 70s. I didn't come along, like I said, until 75, 74, around that time, and it was switching off. Roy Thomas was uh, segueing out of his position as editor-in-chief, and there were this there was this period where they were kind of handing the editor-in-chief position off to different names, such as Marv Wolfman, Archie Goodwin, Len Wein. It was this kind of like, hey guys, you want to take a shot at this? Uh, Jerry Conway, and 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 it was these talented guys, and they would call themselves writer editors and, and or writer editor-in-chiefs because all of them, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Len Wein, Archie Goodwin, were established creatives. They were big-time writers. They worked with. Uh, tons of other talent. They, they they wrote everything from the Spider-Man books to the Fantastic Four books to the Thor books to the Avengers books. They were handling Marvel's top titles, but none of them lasted in the position terribly long. Archie Goodwin was holding the seat uh, when it was given off to a gentleman named Jim Shooter. And we're going to start really uh, with Jim Shooter because he had the most impact in my early uh, stages of my my comic book engagement. Again, so Stan Lee is the guy at the top of the Marvel chain when Marvel is launched. And because of Stan and his uh, great vision in choosing the most amazing collaborators in Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and John Buscema and John Romita Sr. and so many of these terrific talents that he would, you know, go recruit, sign up, Barry Smith, Jim Steranko. He then leaves it to Roy Thomas. They call him Roy the Boy. He's a long-haired, young hippie, and he, he would laugh. He, he knows this is, he did caricatures of himself. He was like the, the Woodstock generation, and he came in, and again, he guided Marvel Comics. And then, once again, this kind of 
hey Marv, hey Lynn, hey Archie, hey Jerry, everybody kind of had their swing at the bat or a brief period guiding these books, but there was a lot of inconsistency. Marvel was actually plagued by tons of reprints at the time. Uh, Avengers 150, for instance, 1976, they were coming off this cool um, Squadron Supreme story that you've heard me share on Rob's Observations, but that Squadron Supreme story did have a giant hit the brakes, screech, two issue interval where the giant overarching story of the Squadron Supreme on a counter earth battling the Avengers and Thor and Hawkeye in the Wild West meeting all of the uh, the, the the Western heroes, those two storylines were, were um, crossing over and making this one giant arc and then suddenly it stopped and there was a two issue just random uh, insert that well, I guess was meant to buy everybody time. It was something that they had in the drawer. Inventory stories uh, come, you know, in 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 handy. They are of great value when you need some deadline relief for your regular creators. And then this is one of those instances. And this is what I'm speaking to when I say that this was an era of reprints. So by Avengers 150, you get it. It's got a celebratory cover. George Perez draws all the Avengers in this great pose coming out at you and then really George only draws eight pages of the issue the rest is a reprint of Jack Kirby Avengers one and four different parts piecemeal together and this was meant to again buy more time for Avengers 151 which was kind of the real celebration of 150 a look back an expansive look back building on the first eight pages of 150 151 does the whole deal and goes through their entire history and ends up with them choosing a new creative team but so within one year Marvel uh, Avengers alone, a top book for Marvel, had three fill-ins. Three kind of hit the brakes. Wait, what's going on? I'm, I'm. This wasn't the story I was reading last month. It doesn't connect with the cliffhanger that 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 I was experiencing. And okay, now I'm getting this two-part story. And then oh, at the end of this, we're returning to the main story that I, you know, uh, got off uh, uh, that I, I segued out of with this fill-in story two months ago. So you might have been in some story through June, July, August, and then suddenly your September and your October comics are a completely different story. And if that sounds crazy, and I know it sounds crazy because as I'm saying that it seems crazy, that's how it was going down. And Jim Shooter speaks of that when he inherited the mantle from Archie Goodwin, that the, the Marvel comics were in a difficult period. They also, as we know from the period just before with Star Wars, they were coming off a, a period of tremendous financial difficulty. Star Wars stepped in. These books pumped a lot of money into a sagging, uh, uh, the, the, the sagging profit margins of Marvel who were having trouble selling comics, the returnability, stuff was being sent back. I'm sure there was tons of complaints over stuff that I was telling you with the Avengers that was happening in 1976. But Star Wars comes in, boom! They have a super injection. They go from red ink to black ink. They're swimming in it. I've covered with you how much those Star Wars comics were being uh, distributed. I mean, they were everywhere. Department stores, uh, big magazine editions, tablet editions, multiple versions. So in 1978, literally January 1st, 1978, Jim Shooter steps in. He was already writing comics for Marvel. When I tell you that he wrote my favorite Avengers comics, they have stood the test of time. They have not been defeated. But I have told you in the past, I've mentioned him, that he started writing for DC Comics through the mail at 14 years old. He was writing Adventure Comics and Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. As a matter of fact, Jim Shooter is credited with creating several of the Legion of Superheroes 
roster several of their super-powered teenagers. Karate Kid is a gym shooter creation. Pharaoh Lad, gym shooter creation. Princess Projectra. Princess Projectra. She projected illusion. She was cool. Um, he also created the group uh, Ultra Villains called the Fatal Five. He created a Superman villain called the Parasite because he was writing action comics as a teenager. This is, he was literally the guy that you would hear uh, read in interviews, in interview magazines, in the tat, in the comic book kind of fanzines about Jim Shooter. Can you believe he broke in when he was a teenager? And it's it's a fantastic story, especially given that such accomplished, legendary veteran talent such as Kurt Swan, a, a like the most famous Superman artist of all, was drawing his stories. This guy, I mean, imagine being 14 years old and these industry veterans are drawing your stories. He would also go on and write the very first race between Flash and Superman. He was very much a DC teen wonder kind. Uh, I mean, this guy was a superstar as a, at a young age. So he then goes and begins working as a freelance writer in uh, at, at, at Marvel Comics, writing some of these fantastic issues of the Avengers. If you can get his Avengers, I think 160, 161, 162, they all kind of connect. Grim Reaper backs up with the two Ultron stories. You introduce the Bride of Ultron, Jocasta. Ant-Man attacks the Avengers in 161 and takes them down like relentlessly over a five, six page sequence. And you go, oh my gosh, how could Ant-Man do this? But you guys, it is such a massive takedown. You, go, I don't want to spoil it, but... The Ant-Man running in your ear, throwing off your equilibrium. At that point, when that happens, it doesn't matter how super powerful you are. He's just knocked you on your keister. Similarly, the fleet of, of fire ants that he's commanding, and he's just, they're all crawling all over Scarlet Witch, so she is so distracted she can't cast a spell. I mean, this is just amazing. The, the, the quickness with which he rises and punches guys, takes them um, by surprise. It is, it is so fantastic. And it, it sets up the fact that Ant-Man is under the control of Ultron, who, uh, who, Hank Pym, who, Hank Pym, who is Ant-Man, created Ultron back in the day. And look, it, it, it ends with, uh, Hank Pym's, you know, wife, Janet Pym, the Wasp, being kidnapped, and Ultron is trying to take her soul, brainwaves, everything about her, and download her into his... Uh, cyborg wife and when Ultron attacks at the end of 161 he lays waste to the entire Avengers who've already been knocked on their keister by Ant-Man but they regroup then Ultron shows up and I had never seen a systematic brutal takedown so much so that the Avengers are leaving on uh, on on ambulance carts because the emergency you know uh, the emergency ambulances had to be called in and that's how how devastating this attack by Ultron is, and he leaves them, he just lays waste to them. So much so that only Iron Man is left, and the next issue, Black Panther comes in, Thor comes in, they team up to take down Ultron, and the great part that has never left me since 1977, reading this story, written by Jim Shooter, drawn by George Perez, inked by Pablo Marcos, Wonder Man, who is as powerful as Superman, who is as powerful as Thor, but he died in issue four of the Avengers way back when, in the Jack Kirby Stanley era, 
and he was resurrected only recently through voodoo magic. Okay, this is Marvel Comics in the 70s. He is tormented by the fact that he knows he was dead and he has been returned from the dead and he feels like he's living on borrowed time and he has this great inner dialogue where he is, how does he tell his 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 teammates how terrified he is because he truly believes he is going to die at the hands of Ultron and he doesn't want to die again. And it is just, it's deep, it's rich. Jim is a talented writer. This guy is one of my favorite writers in the history of comic books and his Avengers are knock out of the park classics amazing count nefaria is another one if you can read that and not go this may be my favorite avengers story or in contention uh, you, you, you I, I dare you i dare you to read jim shooter's count nefaria story uh it's it's just nothing short of phenomenal his graviton which was a next level brand new villain and it again the avengers needed these big scale villains and jim delivered and then he wrote a year-long story called the korvac saga i invite you to read it if it was a movie it would rivet you it involved the guardians of the galaxy the avengers the entire universe held in the balance as this basically this space god walked among us for a year while the avengers figured out who he was why he was there what his agenda was and when they finally encounter him again massive epic consequences and great just character work this was the, you know, signature style of Jim Shooter, who was one of comics' most exciting talents. I mean, come on, he's writing at 14, The Legion, Superman, now he's riveting you with the Avengers. Well, January 1, 1978, he has transitioned from assistant editor, writer, to editor-in-chief. Archie Goodwin hands it off to him January 1, 1978. This era of Marvel is about to shine, okay? You guys, the, the, the biggest accomplishments of his era, an era that was uh, achieved with Stanley now on the West Coast. Stanley is not even in Marvel. He's not in Marvel New York anymore. Stan has relocated to the West Coast. To this is why we got Bill Bixby, Lou Ferrigno's Hulk show. This is why we got the the guy from Sound of Music starring as Peter Parker in the CBS Spider-Man live action show and movies. Yes, these existed. They were a thrill to watch as a kid. You would take whatever they gave you. And the, the Doctor Strange had a creepy two-hour CBS movie. Um, the cartoons started booming. That is because Stan relocated to L.A. with the purpose of getting Marvel out in various forms of media. What you experienced in Endgame was truly the Endgame of Stan's entire uh, mission statement that he started when he left Marvel and flew out in 1977 to begin this journey in 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 California in the early in the mid 70s he was going back and forth but he relocates full time Jim Shooter is now going to run the entire operation um as editor in chief now i'm going to tell you this is it is not an accident that some of my favorite comics come from this era but it's not my favorite comics as i've established before if it was just my favorite comics i would I would bore you with some of my favorite comics that you don't know and won't ever know because they didn't rise above just being great comics. The reason these great comics matter is because they have gone far beyond great comics. They have become the X-Men that you have known in, in whatever it is, nine films, in multiple seasons of the Fox cartoon, in all the toys on your shelf, in multiple trade paperbacks. Jim Shooter's tenure might be one of the richest of any editor-in-chief because he unleashed talent 
into the comic book world. He took their their creative um, limitations off and just let them go. You know how much I've talked about Frank Miller. Let me tell you what you what I haven't talked about Frank Miller recently. Frank Miller has a show coming on Netflix in the next couple of weeks called Cursed. It's his Frank Miller take on the King Arthur slash Excalibur saga. It looks exciting. It's amazing. It, it looks to do for Arthurian legend what he did for, you know, the Battle of the Gates at 300. And, and don't tell me that those Spartan stories, because Frank has done 300 and a sequel, uh, and, and what he did for Xerxes and, and, and the fearsome image of Xerxes and, and the valiant, the bravery, the, the amazing uh, uh, feats of courage of, of the Spartans in 300. Frank is a next level talent. He is like a Spielberg, Tarantino of the comics world. He does not get to where he is today if Jim Shooter doesn't go, okay, you've been drawing Daredevil for about six, seven issues, and you're doing a good job. People are interested again. The book is bi-monthly. Okay, so Frank, you've pitched me that you want to take over the book. You who have never written a comic book, you who have been drawing comics for maybe 16 months now, you want to take over Daredevil. Slight aside, when I have spoken to Neil Adams, the great, legendary, best illustrator of comic books that ever lived, he will go down as, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of comics, Neil Adams tells me that when Frank Miller brought his samples in, he would constantly tell him, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, I keep trying, keep trying. Neil was hard on people. He wanted to bring out your best. He never thought that your whatever you were doing in the present was good enough to satisfy, so he would push you. This kid who was being pushed by Neil Adams, told he wasn't good enough just a few years earlier, is now set to take over the writing and drawing of Daredevil. Great. Maybe that would have achieved in a good selling title. Maybe that would have achieved in in bumping sales. As I've covered with you, Frank Miller takes Daredevil with Elektra, the hand, stick, the complete reboot and, and reimagining of the Kingpin. He takes that book to number one. He takes that book to the number one best-selling single hero character title at Marvel. Better than Iron Man, Spider-Man, uh, Fantastic Four, Avengers. The only book that Daredevil competes with at that level in the, from, from 79 to 83 is the X-Men. The X-Men is the other product of Jim saying, no, let's, let's, let's let this rip. John Byrne, we take you. John Byrne's first issue is 1978. That book goes to monthly. He and Claremont and Terry Austin make absolute wondrous magic. Uh, in, in one of my Facebook groups, everyone was debating like what was their all-time holy grail if they only had one you know, comic book collection. And before I could get to it, another guy said that journey that the X-Men go on from like 1978 to 1980 where they travel the world, they're in Antarctica, they're in Japan, they are in Canada, they are... Uh, just uh, in Scotland, in in Ireland, that they, they are all over as they journey back home is such an amazing transportation. You are in Antarctica with the X Men. You are in the jungles of Savage Land. You are in Japan. Uh, just so many amazing adventures, all under this kid John Byrne that Jim Shooter just says, "Go run with it." And when Jim Shoot and when John Byrne and Chris Claremont have their famous falling out towards X-Men 141-142 right after Days of Future Past. My single favorite issue, two issues, story, my favorite story of the X-Men ever, just took 
blew me back, blew me away, opens with Wolverine in the far future and all of mutants have been wiped out. The Sentinels have been activated as the basically the global police and mutants are you know outlawed and they're operating underground and some of them are in um you know internment camps it's scary it's awesome it's brilliant john burn leaves where's he going jim shooter says i'll give you the fantastic four the fantastic four goes on a six-year run that makes fantastic four arguably a number two seller under the x-men for the entirety of John Byrne's run. The book just goes boom. John Byrne writes and draws. So from super hot artist, oh, you mean I can write too? And the third biggest turn as a artist writer is Walt Simonson. Walt Simonson was doing some Battlestar Galacticas. He was doing some Star Wars. He was definitely contributing to Marvel, but as an artist, sometimes a few writing jobs here and there, he hadn't really ripped off, been able to rip, not ripped off. He, he hadn't, he hadn't, given like that giant run, ripped out a giant run with a signature style yet. He had done X-Men, Teen Titans, this giant, huge fan-anticipated event where the two top, you know, top-selling teams from Marvel and DC get together. John Byrne didn't do it. George Perez didn't do it. They gave it to Walt Simonson. So he does that with Chris Claremont. It's, it's in the summer of 82. The next year, Walt Simonson writes and draws Thor what will then be another five-year run that puts Thor at the top of the charts. Walt, who had not written anything of note, anything of, 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 of particular achievement or memory, the Battlestar Galacticas he, he had written were great, but they were like training wheels. He did several issues and then the book got canceled. No fault of his own. Battlestar Galactica was a troubled license at the time and the show went off the air. So the comic book lasted almost a year more than the show, but Walt is a great artist, putting in great time, writes, draws, Thor, issue one, Beta Ray Bill, Thor loses his hammer, what the heck is going on, screaming at the top of the helicarrier, Father, you know, redeem me, oh my gosh. He goes on to transform Thor in a way that Thor has never been better. So peak X-Men, peak Daredevil, peak Thor, all under Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter empowered creators. He he said to young artists, I'll let you write, prove it to me. Make the deadlines. The sales turned around. That's That takes a guy behind the desk with tremendous vision to invest in talent and let them rock and roll. And again, the sales of these books, Marvel becomes just the hottest comic book company on planet Earth. It, it outdistance, outdistances DC. Now, some of the people who have falling out, fallings out with Jim cross the street and go to DC. That's George Perez. That's Marv Wolfman. And they make DC more competitive than it had been in the late 70s. The early 80s, some of this Marvel talent, Gene Colan, Marv Wolfman, you know, George Perez, they all cross over. But they are not an answer for Walt Simonson's, you know, reimagining of Norse mythology with his Thor run or Frank's groundbreaking Daredevil run, again, that you've seen in a Ben Affleck, Jennifer Garner Fox movie, a Jennifer Garner standalone Elektra movie, three seasons of Daredevil's Netflix, to me, the best thing that Marvel ever did on Netflix are those three seasons of Daredevil, all of them, every episode is a reflection of Frank's work, uh, 300, the Sin City movies, Frank doesn't stop with what he does at Marvel, again, we don't get Dark Knight if Jim Shooter doesn't go, we'll let you run, we'll let you tear it up. 
those are conversations that, that are had between creator and EIC or your editor goes to bat for you and the EIC still has to make an evaluation and says, go with it. Incredible unleashing of creative talent that these are classics up on my bookshelf are all of these that are collected as giant omnibuses. These, again, I've told you about these books that could, you know, probably at least slow down a bullet. They're so thick. They're giant. They're enormous. They're masterful. They, I love having them. They, if you can get these omnibuses, just these works alone, you'll be like, oh my gosh, I could be good on a desert island for the rest of my life with these three runs. If you count X-Men, that's four runs. The Claremont era, keeping Claremont happy. Chris was not a low-demand creator. He was a high-maintenance guy. He will tell you that. Everyone who works with Chris will tell you that. I am a high-maintenance guy. High-maintenance, recognize high-maintenance, okay? So, Roger Stern is another fantastic writer that just completely blossomed under Jim Shooter. He gave great runs of Spider-Man, working with John Romita Jr., working with Ron Friends, to, to, to craft a multi-year-long saga. He did a killer year of Captain America with John Byrne. He also took over the Avengers in the mid-80s and steadied that book when it was really kind of wobbly and had lost a lot of artistic oomph. Roger came on and really put in extra work to make that book relevant again. He really did some heavy lifting. So the Jim Shooter creative era is amazing. But business-wise, Jim Shooter opened up the floodgates on the direct market he started giving comic books that only comic stores would um, carry so that to pull you away from the spinner rack, to get kids like me away from the grocery store and into the comic store. Books like Marvel Fanfare, books like Kazar, books like um, Dazzler. He, he, he shifted some books like Micronauts to a direct-only model, but he was trying to help the comic stores out, saying, if you want this line of comics, they are only available at your comic store. So he was a champion of the direct market. Now under him, as we, this is why this perfectly dovetails if you've listened to my Secret Wars and the Rise of the Company crossover because this is where things get interesting. Secret Wars comes about, you know, 1984, 1985. Before we get there, we have Contest of Champions, which is this accidental happening. You know, the 1980 Olympics falls through as we've covered. The anchor is overseas. No one tells him to stop. He does it. They deliver it. Jim works with his people to say, okay, we can change this from a giant-sized celebration of the Olympics to this standalone three-issue miniseries. They had never published a limited series. Miniseries starts at Marvel with Contest of Champions under Jim's direction. He has to give the green light. Mark Grunewald can pitch till he is blue in the face, but if Jim doesn't hit the button, flip the switch, Contest of Champions doesn't have happen. Contest of Champions does not happen unless Jim Shooter agrees to go forward with this innovative marketing, this innovative publication and, and, and packaging. Contest of Champions is a giant hit. We've covered how Mattel approaches Marvel. Hey, Jim Shooter could have said, no thanks, uh, this doesn't fit us. You want too many uh, modifications of our characters. You want to control the storyline too much. I have covered in depth in the Secret Wars episode and the crossover episode of Rob Observations, how he definitely made his artists work in a different fashion than they were used to. He always wanted crowds of these characters together, envisioning the way you would gather up the toys and fight them against each other. We all know we've stacked up Darth Vader and a couple stormtroopers on one side, and to the left we've got Han Solo, Chew, Chewbacca, Luke, and Leia on, 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 against our villains. That's the way we play. That's how we do it in the sandbox, in the yard. You know, 
uh, on the pavement. That, that, that's how we assemble our characters. Jim wanted it done in a certain way. He definitely um, forced my exec out of his comfortable zone. Mike was not thrilled working this way. It was a lot more work. It was less expressive. And as artists, we like to express ourselves. But it ended up being the biggest selling comic book of all current sales, time, figures, profits for Marvel at that time. Secret Wars is a absolute monster, fantastic success. And it revitalizes Marvel. It just, I mean, again, you've got the, that much sales, that much money, and the guy at the top must be sitting there going, I took a flyer on Frank Miller, boom, hit that out of the park, Daredevil, you know, sales we never even dreamed of. X-Men, sales we never even dreamed of. Thor, I let Walt Simonson, just, I let him let it rip, just throw fastball after fastball with some serious curveballs, and Thor blows up and becomes a must-buy comic book. And you know what? We, As a kid, I didn't have an unlimited bu budget. I would absolutely cut a book from another line, and generally it was probably from DC, to pick up Thor, because Thor was not something I was picking up with any regularity before. Walt Simonson came on it. I had left it behind years before, and boom, now it's a must. It's top of the pile. It is priority. He's looking back going, Frank Miller, John Byrne, Chris Claremont, Roger Stern, Walter Simonson, hundreds of thousands, millions in sales, Electra, Beta Ray Bill, Phoenix, Days of Future Past, all these crazy new directions and toys that he's allowed to be created. Well, he does Secret Wars, blows, blows everything away sales-wise, and you've got to imagine he is sitting pretty... I'm confident in his own abilities. And I just want to quote John Romita Sr. John Romita Sr., who was the art director at this time, who had done his legendary run on Spider-Man. He's an icon. He is, you know, arguably, he's either the number one or number two best known, best recognized, most celebrated Spider-Man artist of all time. He is quoted as saying, Jim Shooter was great, for the first two or three years. Now, those let's stop. First two or three years. That means Daredevil. That means X-Men. That means Fantasy Four. That means Thor. If you just count from 80 to 83, you can fit all of that right in there. Okay? Then he says, and, he, and John Romita Sr. says, He got creative people treated with more respect. Got us sent to conventions in first class treatment. He got, he got us paid for appearances. He increased our royalties. We thought the world of him. John Romita Sr., legend to this day. Then the Secret Wars hit, and it was a giant success. And after that, he decided, speaking of Jim Shooter, John Romita Sr., speaking of Jim Shooter, he decided he knew everything, and he decided he was going to start changing everybody's stuff. So that is a very reputable creator, a legend in the field. You know, John Romita Sr., Mark that and, and put that alongside a quote from John Byrne, where John, John Byrne says, Jim Shooter came along just when Marvel needed him, but he stayed too long. Having fixed just about everything that was wrong, he could not stop fixing. Around the time that I, John Byrne, left to do Superman, I said, I thought that Jim Shooter and Dick Giordano should trade jobs. It was DC that needed the fixing. Jim should have changed jobs every five years. That, that's what he should have done. Shooter had put Marvel into a place where all that was needed 
from him had been given. He was the, the right guy at the right time, the right guy at the helm. But Secret Wars was when Jim kicked into high gear and became trouble. Boom! Boom! So you got John Ramey Sr. and John Byrne both, John Byrne both marking the exact time where Jim Shooter ships. So this is 85. And becomes a guy that suddenly everybody is having creative difficulties with. And and this would kind of uh, become what was... Uh, what, what was defining Jim's end days at Marvel was uh, was that he was more talked about about a guy that everyone was fighting with. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's sad because, again, as a kid and as a reader, I'm going to tell you right now, we're still dining out on all these creative input. You know, uh, whether they're good or not, you know, you can't... Dark Phoenix came out last summer. It didn't do well. That doesn't mean the studio didn't spend $200 million trying to bring that vision under Jim Shooter's EIC tenure to life. Um, the Daredevil efforts. All the X-Men efforts. Uh, you know, the Thor Ragnarok. Thor Dark World. The first Thor movie. They are all a product of the storytelling and the creations that were done while Jim Shooter was calling the shots, giving these guys their big chances. Something that cannot be underscored is that Jim Shooter institutionalized royalties for artists. There's a huge gap and a date that is marked where people who were creating characters from Marvel were not receiving uh, participation royalties. Um, royalties of sales, you hit a certain benchmark, your royalties kick in. It's all over the place. It used to be, you know, 80,000, 100,000. Sometimes it's gone as low as 40,000. But once that 40,000 and one sale is, ma is made, you start making money. Once you know, 80,001 is, is selling, you're making money. And then if that book sells 400, 500,000, like he did under Mark Silvestri on the X-Men, you can't imagine the money you're making. Mark Silvestri lived in Malibu, had a silver Porsche, was seen as the richest guy in comics. That was off X-Men royalties. This is not something that Mark is shy about. We all knew it. We were chasing him. Todd McFarlane would get on the phone with me and go, we, we, we got to get into, into Mark's level. Those royalties. Oh, Okay, so royalties were a big deal. Sales benchmarks were institution uh, were, were, were were implemented. They were implemented that you would get paid after a certain amount of, you know, copies were sold. That's a big deal. You know, I didn't live in a world that that wasn't the case. I can only imagine how frustrating that could have been when 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 you know you, you see Charles Barkley and Magic Johnson talking about the money that the NBA guys are making now as opposed to their deals. I mean, the world. Flipped out when Dr. Jerry Buss decided to give Magic Johnson a million a year, right? I mean, that was a big contract. Now, what are we get, getting these guys? 30 million a year? More? I mean, 26 million, 25 million a year? You know, Barkley, Magic. I mean, they are, again, you know, monuments of the sport. Never saw those kind of paydays. But my generation did. And that's because Jim Shuri also made it that if your work got licensed as toys, I signed things called character agreements. People always ask me, why did you create Cable and Deadpool and Shatterstar and Domino and all these characters from Marvel? I said, I read those character agreements. That's a good deal. And I am telling you right now, sometimes 4 or 5% of something is better than 100% of nothing, okay? You can own 100% of something and it, it doesn't leave the tarmac, but man, if you attach yourself to the right rocket and you've got 5% of that rocket, that is crazy. That is, that changed my life. It bought my parents a house. It, it set me up. It's, um, 
it, it set me up for the family that I have now. This is a tremendous thing that Jim Shooter did for the creative community when he implemented royalties. So no matter what the shout downs and the misgivings that he had with creators and, and that they had with him and the and maybe some of the fallouts, you cannot deny the, 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 the creative decisions that he made and how they benefited. And then the business aspects that he implemented into comic books, the sales benchmarks, the licensing. If your character becomes a toy, you will receive money off of it. Well, the Liefeld family is a testament. My toy shelf of Deadpool and Cable and Domino and Shatterstar and all the different versions. And, and, and when, when, when there were 20 Cable figures and 10 Deadpool figures in the 90s, I was benefiting from Jim Shooter's business application to help creators. So uh, these were huge things that he implemented. Secret Wars gave him a different outlook. I think he did the Jim Shooter stories. Secret Wars was not on par with anything that I described earlier in the Avengers. Maybe he was micromanaged by Mattel. Maybe there were parameters. Again, I can tell you, he changed the way he told stories and he carried this to Valiant. And I've never uh, seen Jim in the same mode that I did on the Avengers again. But but the creative decisions, the business decisions, all of this has, has contributed, in my opinion, to him being the greatest editor-in-chief that ever guided Marvel Comics. Now, he was fired on April 15th, 1987. Marvel gave him, you know, the pink slip, you're out the door. My phone rang, a good fr a guy who had been a great mentor to me named Jerry Ordway. You've seen Jerry's work on All-Star Squadron. You've seen Jerry's work on Superman, Adventure Comics, so much. He is a phenomenal, outstanding, fan favorite, uh, uh, amazing artist, amazing, adored by so many. He was a very generous mentor to me. I stayed with him at his house when I went to visit New York City for the first time in 1987. Uh, visited with him and my exec, was was able to pick their brains, watch their processes. Jerry, who you know knew me and uh, knew that I was just starting out my career, I actually drew my very first Marvel work while Jim Shooter was the editor in chief. Marvel Universe Handbook, Book of the Dead. Uh, I did the Zodiac. I'm the last issue of the Book of the Dead. I did all the Zodiacs. So that was done while Jim is still the editor in chief. So I am drawing that for Marvel and my phone rings and it is Jerry Ordway informing me, hey Rob, you're going to hear about this from somebody else. I just want to let you know Jim Shooter was fired, looks like about an hour, hour or two ago. And I'm, I am in Southern California. It's like 1.30 in the afternoon. You know, it's 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 uh, it's 10.30, you know, in New York time. And Jerry Ordway saying, I just want you to know, I wanted you to give you a heads up. I don't know if it affects you in any way, but, but you're going to hear about it eventually. I just want to be the first to tell you. I was so appreciative that Jerry picked up the phone. I was also sad because a great era was ended. Whatever fights that Jim Shooter had, had gotten into, whatever power grabs, because I think he uh, was definitely uh, becoming, he, he, he craved more maybe uh, absolute say over the entire division, maybe, maybe reach beyond the editor-in-chief. I don't know, only he knows. You know, just like Hamilton, the room where it happened. Wasn't there, don't know what went down. All I know is that he was gone. The man who would follow him, and again, Jim Shooter, amazing era. Those creative bodies of work will last forever. We are still seeing them being exploited. I have not, I don't think we've seen the last of Elektra. We have yet to see Beta Ray Bill. Uh, we haven't seen the best of that X-Men stuff yet. We haven't seen Proteus 
throttle the X-Men. There, there is so much. That, the true Hellfire Club has not come in to play yet. I mean, we are still waiting to see some of this amazing stuff. Alpha Flight. Alpha Flight. Skipped over it. A product of Jim Shooter empowering John Byrne. No, no Jim Shooter letting John Byrne run away with whatever he wants. No Alpha Flight. A complete Canadian super team created by a superstar Canadian artist. So, Jim Shooter, five stars, outstanding. So much that he accomplished. Tom DeFalco follows him. Tom's a great guy. I know Tom. Tom was the editor-in-chief for most of my uh, duration at Marvel Comics. He empowered uh, all of us to do the best work we possibly could. Under Tom DeFalco, he takes over in, obviously, spring of 1987, Tom has been an established editor. He's an established writer. He takes over. He steps in. And Marvel does some really exciting stuff. It is a changing of the guard. I've mentioned this before. This is the formal changing of the guard. John Byrne is left. He's gone to DC. He's doing Superman now. Maybe the most important artist, writer that they had is gone. Walt Simonson is downshifting from, Walt, from, from uh, Thor. He's stepped in on X-Factor to make sure that that book is the very best it could possibly be. He did a phenomenal run on X-Factor. Um, but the Hulk is kind of shifting. It's changing. John Byrne, it's the last thing he did. Then Al Milgram, who had primarily been an inker, was stepping in doing some fill-ins. The book was losing momentum. He pairs a guy named Peter David with a young buck named Todd McFarlane, and the Hulk explodes. Explodes. He gives, opens the door for Jim Lee. Jim Lee to come on Alpha Flight, then Punisher War Journal and transform, just give giant oomphs of excitement to those books. He establishes a young punk named Rob Liefeld and gives him some great career advice. And one time when I showed him my pencils, I pulled him out. Because Tom, very generous, talks talks like, you know, talks like a New Yorker, the way that New Yorkers are like stereotypically seen. Rob looks at my page, sees all the little intricate details, the leaves, the trees, the, the bushes that I've drawn. And he goes... You know, we don't pay you by the amount of lead you put on a page, okay? Maybe lighten up. Maybe you could do some work faster if you did that. And I laughed. I'm like, that's funny. They don't pay me by the amount of lead I put on a page. That's great. I love it. We were the new breed, again, inspired by Art Adams and all the insane detail that he was putting on because Art Adams would draw all the rendering on every single leaf, the little leaf veins, whatever that you see. I mean, every little follicle of grass. That's what we were trying to aspire to. Myself, Todd, Jim Lee, all the, the, the I, what I will call the image boys. Tom DeFalco empowers all of us. Under Tom, Mark gets a bigger role on the X-Men. Wills Protasio happens, Eric Larson steps in. Now, individual editors are doing their thing, but he absolutely empowered them. There was an arms race going on between the Spider-Man office and the X-Men office, and that arms race created Spider-Man's uh, incredible rebirth under Todd and David Michelini and Eric Larson, and then Mark Bagley. That's Tom Empowers, the editor of that book, Jim Salakrup. Like, go for it. Go for it. Be competitive. You know, try and take the X-Men on, because the X-Men had been a domino. Also under Jim Shooter, the first X-Men spinoff. I, oh, Jim Shooter, New Mutants, huge. I don't have a book to draw unless Jim Shooter says, we should probably spin off this X-Men title. All green like that. New Mutants, X-Men, Bob Harris wants to change it up. Bob Harris calls me under Tom DeFalco's, uh, you know, reign as editor-in-chief. And Bob Harris goes, Rob, saw your work on Hawk and Dove? Here's the deal. I'm taking over. The books, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm just been in the editor's chair here just a brief period, but I want to get a change. 
I want to pump some new blood. I think all these books could use a, a, a surge of new talent. He had tried to talk me into taking over X Factor because at that time Walt was going to leave. And I didn't want to follow Walt Simonson. I thought that was a terrible idea on every level. Walt was an was, is an A-level, first class, top of the line, legendary talent. You don't follow that. You're you're only gonna get judged against uh his very best. And you better be at your very best on every panel if you even hope to survive. And you're not gonna survive. It's just Sometimes I, I do wish that more creators would guide themselves with practical um, applications as to how to manage your career, okay? It happens in, with athletes. It happens with actors. You have to wonder the consequences of, of what taking that role, whether it's you know being the starting point guard on this team or being the lead actor in this new franchise. What's that going to do for you? What's that going to not do for you? What's it going to take away from you? Under Tom DeFalco, we all found our voices. Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld. Tom DeFalco, his greatest claim to fame is enabling all of the marketing directors, all of the salespeople, and all of the creatives that created Spider-Man 3 million copies, X-Force 5 million copies, X-Men 8 million copies. Those are ridiculous standards. And I got to be honest, when I was in it, as excited as I was to be in it, I did not know that that would be like it wouldn't go three, five, eight, and then ten million. It started going backwards to the point where they never outsold. Nothing at Marvel has outsold Todd's three million, much less my five, and forget about Jim's eight. Like those just those just aren't getting beat. And X Force, I'm gonna beat my own drum here. Remember, between Spider-Man and X-Men is a group of characters that did not exist 18 months prior to that. Cable, Shatterstar, Deadpool, Domino. Those are characters that the comics world was just beginning to be familiar with. They sell 5 million units for Marvel Comics. When I had a fair amount of doubters in, in the offices, I'm going to tell you. But Bob Harris had my back and Tom DeFalco had my back. And Tom DeFalco had Todd's back. He believed in Todd and Todd said, I got to write my own book. Done. He knew the consequences. Don't let Todd walk out that door. Rob Liefeld, if we don't fulfill our promise that we told him, when we hired him and said, you will be able to take over the New Mutants. I didn't take the New Mutants gig without knowing that I would be writing it and having control of these characters. I had Alpha Flight was being offered to me to write and draw. I was offered the Hulk. I was offered Doctor Strange. These are things that if you don't know, I am telling you now. Bobby Chase offered me, the editor on Hulk, offered me the Hulk. Uh, Ralph Macchio was desperately trying to get me to come over and do Doctor Strange. Uh, Danny Fingeroth had arranged that I would write and draw Alpha Flight. I was a guy with options. My career had nothing but pure fire at that moment. So to take the New Mutants and to beat that kind of broken down house, put it back together and, and, and put a new shine on it, I had made very clear, like, I need to have more creative direction. There is nothing that happened in those books prior to my formally writing them with 98 that I was not consulted on, directing. Um, there was an entire issue that I rejiggered, rewrote. It's, uh, I think, my second issue on New Mutants. I think, it's, I think it's 88. I called up Bob Harris. I said, this has gotten so far off in one issue. And Bob said, that's okay, man. I got your back. I'll take care of you. The writer was transitioning off. Bob had already told me I would become the, 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 the writer on the book before I took the job. Anything else is not true. I don't take that job without those assurances. But Tom DeFalco has to clear that. Tom empowered the new voices that would take over for the guys who had been 
carrying the industry. Because let me tell you something. It's not, it's not fair to say these guys ran out of steam. That's like saying Magic and Larry ran out of steam after completely remaking the NBA. As you guys know, the NBA games were being shown, playoff games were shown after the news at 11.30 or, or midnight. They didn't have primetime slots anymore. The NBA was not a ratings draw, okay? Magic and Larry changed all that. They changed that competition between that Indiana boy and that Michigan boy became the stuff of legends, and we all tuned in, and the Celtics-Lakers was just outstanding ratings gold, and it, it, it brought the NBA back from the brink of losing TV contracts, okay? Well, Walt Simonson, Frank Miller, John Byrne, Chris Claremont, these guys held up the industry and transformed it as it transitioned to the direct market, made comic books ridiculously exciting. But after 10, 12 years, their voices, you know, you tune out a coach's voice. I've seen it. My All my kids got three teenagers, one 20-year-old. They've all played travel ball, travel soccer. My, my middle son played with the Compton Magic. He played with one of the most competitive basketball teams on the West Coast. These, I have seen competition at every level, these travel ball basketball teams, these tournaments. I've seen coaches completely lose their voice after a couple years with kids, okay? It happens in sports. It happens in comics. We were the new voices. The fans needed new voices. We were the new blood. We came in and we surged because Tom DeFalco empowered us. Marvel did a lot of crossovers under Tom DeFalco. They doubled the amount of crossovers that Shooter was doing. I've mentioned some of them from... Atlantis attacks to acts of vengeance to follow the mutants um so many crazy crossovers but tom was there you know to shift it into high gear i was visiting the marvel offices uh and tom i've told this before tom approached me with one of my uh x-force drawings that hadn't been published yet and he said hey come on, come into my office i want to show you something i want to show you something give have an open mind and he had with crayons colored cable and the entire tune team in a blue and yellow scheme. He wanted the X-Men to get back to their traditional blue and yellow color scheme from the early Stan and Jack comics. And I, I thought it was cute. It was admirable. He is pitching this to a 22-year-old. I, I, you know, this. I was incredibly young and he was entrusting this with me, but he wanted to pitch me. And I said, Tom, I just don't see it. I have very specific ways I see these characters. And he was fine. Okay. Okay. Look, I just want to offer it to you. I just want to offer it to you. Tom would come out to the West Coast con uh, comic conventions, and he would take us to ball games. Tom took myself, Jim Valentino, to uh, Oakland A's games, to Angels games. He was a very personal, friendly editor-in-chief. He wanted to be pals. He wanted to make you feel good about what you were doing for Marvel. It is no fault of Tom DeFalco's that we left. That royalty provision that Jim Shooter put in made all of us extremely wealthy at a young age. I've told you, I suddenly was getting, uh, New Mutants 100 gave me $300,000, okay? That is life-changing money to a 22-year-old. Uh, X-Force would give me seven figures. I'd get a seven-figure royalty on X-Force, okay? And then X-Force 2, I mean, get, get out of here. That X-Force 2 sold 1.3 million copies. I got another, you know, 1992. I'm 23 now, I'm 24. And getting these royalties, and they're ridiculous. They're life-changing money for a, for a young, you know, kid. I'm not married. Uh, the one thing about the Image guys, when we broke off, I did not have a fiance, a girlfriend. I did not have kids. You know, 
Uh, Jim Lee was married expecting a kid. Todd McFarlane was married with his first child. Jim Valentino had a full family child. He, he married three, four kids. Uh, just They were coming and going so fast. Yeah, four, uh, five. Oh my gosh, with five kids in the Valentino family, okay? Mark Silvestri had a fiance. Eric Larson was married. I believe he had a child on the way. We were all, all those guys were quote unquote more mature. I'm a youth, I'm just a kid. I see my son right now. I asked, I told my son the other day, I go, you know, when I was your age, I was drawing Hawk and Dove number four right now. It's weird. It's weird. But that royalty provision by Jim Shooter was making us all, and I'm not alone. This is Todd is getting this kind of paydays. Jim is getting this kind of paydays. So that provision and that money that came upon us gave us freedom of choice. So when we left Marvel Comics in 1992, it was not out of bad will ever from my end. Bob Harris believed in me. Tom DeFalco believed in me. He had allowed me to fill up all these comic book pages with Deadpool and Cable and Domino and Shatterstar and have the very best time any young man would ever hope to have. They believed in me. They believed in Todd. Spider-Man drastically changed. Todd drew a different, weird Spider-Man, and he found a different voice. And Eric Larson followed him up. And, I mean, when amazing and, and the objectiveless Spider-Man, because it was the Todd's book didn't have a you know, spectacular or an amazing moniker. It was a Spider-Man. Those two books were powerhouses. Then bringing Bagley in, I mean, the Spider-Man office was transformed. All new books were launched. Jim Valentino, Guardians of the Galaxy, okay? The New Warriors, uh, She-Hulk getting her own book. And as we were leaving, they were launching Cage, giving Luke Cage his own book. And and it was this, it, it was really the, the age of, of, of the gimmick cover. We had trading cards and multiple covers that you fit together, but the enhanced covers, Mark Silvestri, whatever that issue of Wolverine where the, 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 the claws cut through the cover, that, that is a cover enhancement. Cage having an acetate overlay. Marvel did nothing but thrive shortly after that. The reason Marvel went into bankruptcy, and you're like, what? when are they going to bankruptcy? They went into bankruptcy in 1996-97. In 96, first few weeks of 97, uh, I was a contracted uh, player with Marvel at the time under Heroes Reborn, and I was called to be given this news because of the contract that I had. They have to call their contract players first. They told me the day they were going to um, file. Before the day they were going to file, they had to call me and let me know. It's part of the legal processes. Marvel would go into bankruptcy because they bought too much. They bought a toy company. They bought a sticker company. They bought a distribution. The debt outweighed the profits, but not from the comic books. The comic books had been so successful for them. But they got big eyeballs, and the guy who owned uh, Marvel at the time, Ron Perlman, wanted to buy everything under the sun, and it, it hampered the operations, and they had to reorganize. But the comic books were successful. Tom, Tom's EIC... Uh, his overture of the company at the time was ridiculously successful. He empowered us as creators. Shortly after, so Tom would stop being the EIC in like 94. There was this weird, another weird period, like the one I mentioned prior to Jim Shooter, where Bobby Chase, Mark Grunewald, Bob Harris, and a couple more were given this kind of multiple five-person editor-in-chief position. Now, this is interesting. This doesn't last long because new management comes into Marvel. The management that greenlights Heroes Reborn. And a guy named Jerry Calabrese, who came from Lionel Trains. And a guy named Joe King, who came from Turner Network. Joe King, I would always say, your, your name is Joe King. Joe King. Joe King. But he was a good Southern boy. Jerry Calabrese was a good kind of toy guy. They came in. They wanted to reboot Marvel's 
classic line of heroes that had been sagging. Iron Man, Captain America, Avengers, Fantastic Four. Nobody was buying these books. They were selling in the 20,000s, while X-Men and Spider-Man were in the upper, you know, 200, 300,000s, okay? Huge sales lag. They came, they said, Rob, Jim, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, do you want to do this? Now, the reason I'm telling you this, this is we're, we're too early for Heroes Reborn, but you're getting a little tickle right now. I know you guys want me to go deeper into that. That's gonna happen. But the reason I'm telling you this is, they're deciding on a new editor-in-chief. And I can tell you with 100% accuracy, and Jim Lee would 100% verify this, as would Larry Martyr, who was the publisher of Image Comics, and we took him to several of these meetings to observe these in order to report back to the Image guys at the time. We were offered a group of names and asked, Jim and I were specifically asked to choose the new editor-in-chief among the picks. They said, we have these guys. Who would you pick? And I'm not going to tell you who the other guys were. That would be too cruel. But Bob Harris was one of the three names. Bob had had obviously given me so much uh, of uh, so much freedom. Allowed me to reboot New Mutants, create X Force, bring Cable, Domino, Deadpool into the world. I, I'm I'm gonna always favor Bob. He changed my life. Those those opportunities changed my outlook. Changed the trajectory in my career from just successful artist to you know financial like geysers going off it was is in the same for jim jim lee under bob harris and his you know vision and letting jim go we had both done very well for ourselves so we we chose bob and they're all right all right so you you guys are voting you guys are voting for bob harris and i said we would love to work with him because heroes are born was going to be a very big deal very important very very tough to negotiate because all of marvel was against them outsourcing this was outsourcing they never outsourced their icons. They were about to outsource Cap, Iron Man, Avengers, and Fantastic Four. And like the short story, and we'll get to this, we delivered. Number one selling Cap in 50 years, okay? Uh, Best selling Iron Man. Fantastic Four was selling 22,000. Captain America was selling 22,000. We gave them sales boosts of 350,000 copies. You guys, Heroes Reborn was a monster success, but everybody else at Marvel hissed and, 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 you know, well, these were supposed to sell a million. Great, awesome. So we took them from twenty-two thousand to three hundred and fifty thousand, but we were shy of the seven hundred thousand because somebody whispered that, hey, these should be selling a million. Ridiculous politics going on. Really hard to navigate. Bob Harris, I don't even think he was for Heroes Reborn, but we needed the friendliest voice in the room in New York City, and we got it. And we helped choose Bob. So Jim Lee and I, one hundred percent. Contributed. Now, this is not something that Bob knows. At San Diego in 1995, I congratulated Bob as we are passing each other in the lobby of the Marriott. You guys who've been to the San Diego, you know that lobby. They it now is the lobby where you go to the food court. But on the way to the restaurant, away from the check-in desk, I pass Bob. I say, Bob. I high-five him. I hug him. I say, Congratulations! Congratulations on the EIC gig. Because I had, they had already told Jim and I he was getting it, and he's like. What? What? I go, Bob, Bob, you're EIC. You are going to be the editor-in-chief. It's a done deal. And Bob looked at me like, oh, this is not something I knew. But it was my absolute pleasure. That guy has had my back my whole career. It was my pleasure. And you know what? He may have been uh, those guys who worked in New York with Bob on the East Coast during these times. May go, oh, Bob was always this. I don't care what he said. All I care is what he did. And what he did is he let me rip. And he let me go. And he let me transform this stuff. So it was my pleasure to tell Bob, you're the EIC. Bob would become EIC 
during this bankruptcy era, which is the most ridiculous era. Marvel was hampered in terms of budgets. They couldn't pay every book to be colored by good colors. You have no idea the restrictions. Bob was basically editor-in-chief of a ship that was sinking. And there was no, you know, unsinking it. It was going down. Bob is replaced by Joe Quesada in 2000. Uh, despite Bob's efforts to keep it going, they brought another wave of new management in. And a guy named Bill Jemis takes the helm as publisher, and he was probably the loudest, sexiest publisher they'd had in a long time. Bill wanted to be heard. Bill was not going to sit in the back. Bill wanted to, uh, you know, be known and, and have his voice measured and was not going to be, uh, to, he was not going to sit behind the EIC. People refer to this time as Quemus. People, when I talk of them, they, they, they talk about this time at Marvel with Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada as the Quemus era. Oh, the Quemus. Pretty funny. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, Benefer. It's that editor. I mean, it's that, it's that, it's that you know, arena. He, um, he was a vice president and he was a, uh, the, the, the publisher. And Bill was a brash guy. I know this because he took me out to lunch at Chicago Comic Con in the summer of 2000 as the transition was about to be made from Bob Harris to Joe Quesada. And Bill, the, the thing that was haunting Marvel at the time was that the X-Men movie had come out from Fox and it was a big hit. Do not discount that in the summer of 2000, everyone was betting against the X-Men movie. It comes out, it's number one at the box office. It makes $150, $160 million in the United States, which was a giant benchmark at the time. We have moved past, obviously, in 20 years to, well, did your movie make a billion worldwide? $150 million for the X-Men movie, the first Marvel comic book movie, superhero movie. Don't get me started on Blade. Marketed as a vampire horror film from New Line. Not the same budget, not the same. That was a Wesley Snipes vehicle. X-Men was literally positioned as a giant new age of comic book films. Fox uh, literally, you know, budgeted it to where there was very little money to spend on the film. But because of the break, pre breakthrough performances and casting of, you know, Sir Ian McGillan, uh, the, the, the Patrick Stewart, um, all uh, the, the breakout of, 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 uh, of Hugh Jackman, okay? These, um, these, this, that, that movie just took off, you know, the, 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 the roles, Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman, um, even James Marsters. I mean, this was, this was a hot cast, man. Um, and, and, and X-Men did well, but Marvel had nothing to support it in the market. Marvel did not have anything really to tie in or expand. And I believe it's because of Blade and some of these other movies, they didn't really move any any product, so they they sat this one out. I think Bob Harris's decision to uh, looked good in the at the time that we don't know that this X Men movie is not going to completely flop. We haven't heard good things about it. It's low budget. It's not this big, giant, expansive movie like you know the year before with Star Wars: Phantom Menace or Matrix or even the Mummy had more money put, thrown at it. Okay, but now X Men, you know, they're going very conservative with this. But they did not expand and have any tie-in comics or anything that the public could maybe latch onto. And the one thing that everybody liked about the X-Men movie, because we took our neighbors to see the X-Men film, okay? And 
The reason they liked it is because of the school. It seemed like Harry Potter. When Hugh Jackman gets there, he's our audience surrogate. He learns that there's giant jets underneath the basketball court that opens up and you fly out of. And the school has this whole other meaning and all these special kids. It was a great, great get-to-know-you, meet this Xavier's, you know, school of gifted students. It, it was a great intro to that world. And Marvel didn't have anything to follow up on that because they were too busy telling, you know, these very continuity heavy stories. Well, Jemis has me at lunch on the Saturday of Wizard World 2000 in Chicago. And we're talking about the X-Men books and we're talking about what's going on. And he's very excited. He tells me they're, they're bringing in Mark Miller, who's doing the Ultimates, uh, who's going to do the Ultimates for them. He's, he loves Mark's work uh, over at DC on Superman Adventures and the stuff that he's doing on The Authority. And it was firing up fans. And Jemis was very excited. And he was telling me about this new Ultimate line and Spider-Man and X-Men. And he, and he was very much marketing himself as the architect of this. He had come from FLIR. So he was very excited. Joe Casada and I did not, we have not been close. We are not close. I respect, you know, what he's done. I, I wish he would draw more. I think he's a great artist. Um, he was established under Bill as Bill's EIC under Bill Jemis as publisher. Again, they were nicknamed Quemus. He he replaces, Bill is in power when he picks Joe to replace Bob Harris, okay? And then the most significant thing that was done under the Casada EIC is the ultimate line. But Bill Jemis takes co-ownership of that as launching that with Mark Miller on Ultimate X-Men, Ultimates, and then Brian Bendis on Spider-Man. And to me, that is the signature of the uh, that era, which is very weird because Marvel's coming out of bankruptcy. The movies are about to happen. Um, but I do know uh, my buddy Mark Powers, who worked under Bob Harris, who maintained as the X-Men editor for several years, uh, told me a story where Joe Quesada came in shortly after being hired and sat down with some 90s comics in his hands and... Uh, boasted to everyone he had the x-men editors there another guy named J jason liebig they both told me the same story they called me that afternoon and joe i don't know if it was playfully or i don't know how serious he was but he tossed down some of these 90s comics and he said so guys tell me did anything good happen to the x-men in the 90s and they took it as an affront as like they hadn't been doing their jobs that these books weren't massively successful and they were very, they felt like they were kicked in the gut. And it was a kick in the gut to anybody like myself who had contributed. I have just done a, a, a run on cable to get the sales on that up. And I was currently doing four issues of Wolverine. So it was funny to hear. But I got to tell you, the X-Men books were never worse under this regime. The X-Men thrived under Shooter. They, they went to new heights under DeFalco. But the X-Men cratered at Marvel under the Casada era. The Ultimate line was a... Great reboot. Let's redo all the Stan Lee, Steve Ditko stories. Let's tell them through a modern lens and let's, you know, let's have a go. Make them brand new, reader friendly so that you can get off, you know, same with the X-Men. Let's let's bring the X-Men to an audience brand new from a fresh perspective. And uh, and that's that's that was a tremendous success. At one point, the Ultimate Books were more successful commercially and more uh, fan favored than the regular line. The uh, the X-Men just never got off the ground under the Casada era. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and a really, the Grant Morrison start 
was strong, but it petered out quickly. They didn't have artists to match up with him. And as we've talked several times, comic books are visual. And Joe Quesada is a great artist. He is a visual guy, but the X-Men books would then go on this kind of weird, unfulfilling run where the art wasn't up to snuff. And part of that, I believe, is because the Marvel agenda was to move the talent onto the Avengers line of books because they needed the Avengers to pick up steam for investors because they were going to ask Wall Street for some loans, get some investment money to start making their own films, which we would obviously all experience with Iron Man. So the Avengers becomes the priority and it's really low-hanging fruit as they put Wolverine and Spider-Man in the book. And I got to be honest, if you put Wolverine and Spider-Man on the same team, they had not been Avengers previously, but it was done to make the Avengers the number one selling book. They're trying to raise money for the Avengers. They're trying to bring outside capital, tell the banks, look, it's much easier to go into a bank and say, you should finance this family of books. They're number one on the charts. They're the hottest books in this business and we look to transform them. The Avengers was not uh, at that point Post Heroes Reborn and the immediate Heroes Return, the Avengers had flatlined again, were not selling anywhere near what they had been selling. And quite frankly, the Ultimates line, which was a retelling of the Avengers in the Ultimates universe by Mark Miller, by Brian Hitch, genuinely, generally regaled as the best of the Ultimate line. That first 12 issues of Ultimates by Mark Miller and Joe Quesada, I mean, and, and, and Brian Hitch is like the stuff that the deals of the devil are made. It's it's perfect. It's brilliant. It's flawless. And But it wasn't called the Avengers. It was called the Ultimates. But you need the Avengers to be hot if you're looking to raise capital for the Avengers. So what do they do to gild the lily? They put Spider-Man and Wolverine on the team. And they bring a super hot artist named Dave Finch. And, and you want to talk about, because again, I was the victim of it on Heroes Reborn, and I don't know how you look at through the same lens and go, and how did that book not sell a million? New Avengers was supposed to be the new you know, the new thing, but it did not ever fulfill its promise. You have Spider-Man, you have you have Wolverine on the, on the team, you have Dave Finch at the helm, you have Steve McNiven doing fill-ins, you have Lanil Yu, you have a murderer's row of the top artists, and the book never kind of reaches the idea of, wow, you're going to have Spider-Man and Wolverine on this team. Um, the Xada era is weird. It's not my cup of tea. It's very writer-favored. Uh, uh, um, it's... It, it, my favorite thing they did, they undid J. Michael Straczynski's Spider-Man run, which was to me a new shot in the arm. They completely undid Grant Morrison. Great idea. Go kind of derails early on. They don't have the artist to match up with him. It's, it's a, uh, th these aren't the finest. All the guys who should be doing the X-Men are doing the Avengers, which is kind of underperforming. And yet, you know, the X-Men is floundering. And 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 uh, Chuck Austin is is one of the writers that jumps on the X Men and and I mean I got to be honest it's a giant kind of blurry like two, the two thousand to like two thousand six two thousand era of X Men is not memorable on any level um, I think X twenty three comes out of it so there's a great character there okay X twenty three is is memorable I, that that comes out of a an isolated uh, NYX book but so the the, the the, the Casada era, again, again, you didn't do Daredevil better than Frank. You didn't do Thor better than Walt. You, you didn't do the X-Men better than Jim or John or me, X-Force, none of that stuff. Okay? Um, it's a weird era. I, I don't... The signature of it would be Civil War. The, the, the big ring the bell is Civil War. Again, Mark Miller, talent unleashed. If they let... Uh, but, but Bill Jemis will tell you to, the, to his dying day that Mark Miller is his pick. I don't know how that all works out. I know that Bill... Uh, was with the company a, a great period of time. 
I, uh, then Joe would go on to be editor-in-chief on his own after uh, after Jemis and Avi Arad kind of uh, have, have a falling out. And so Jemis leaves, I believe, like 2004, 2005. And, uh, and, and so from that period on, you know, Marvel, uh, I, I just don't remember anything kind of like to me that the peak of Ultimates is Ultimates. You know, the Brian Hitch, Mark Miller, perfect 12-issue first miniseries that was taking everybody's breath away. That is a great achievement. But there was no new... Um, I, I, I look at like, what did they do for creators? And I don't know that other than writers who got to write, you know, four books a month, I don't know anybody who benefited under that run. And I go, Jim Shooter, creators benefited. Tom DeFalco, creators benefited. I don't know what kind of creator ownership. I, I actually know from personal experience that some creator ownership under Joe Casada was being challenged. And, and with me personally, they were trying to take it away. I don't hold it personally. I overcame it. I came out on the winning end of that. But it's not an impressive run as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it goes Jim. It goes Tom. It goes then Quimus. Um, that, that's my take. Uh, even, I'll, I'll put it this way, even maybe the most mediocre Marvel comic in the, the Quemus era is better than most other comics. But this is also a period where The Walking Dead is happening, okay? Um, there are exciting things happening in the independent uh, uh, comic book market. And some killer creative runs. Jeff Johns is exploding at the same time over at DC. So I didn't get any, to anybody at DC today. We really just covered this period of Marvel from for, of 25 years of Marvel. And I'm going to tell you right now, Jim Shooter, uh, you know, give him the gold, give uh, give Tom DeFalco the silver, and give Casada and Bill Jemis the bronze. That's how I see it. That's how I uh, I, I I rank these. Um, the, these runs in, in, in the benefits they gave creators, the creative uh, license they gave creators, uh, you cannot argue the, 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 the bodies of work that, that Shooter and DeFalco empowered, okay? And, and, and Mark Morales, I'm sorry, Miles Morales is a huge character. I, I, he may have come under uh, Axel Alonso. I didn't come with all my research in hand, uh, but that's how I see the Marvel EICs, how they shaped an era, how they positioned creators, and everything in between. Bob Harris gets a pass, bankruptcy, uh, editor-in-chief, uh, really, really difficult, terrible period. Shooter, DeFalco, Quemus, that's how I rank them. If you disagree, you're going to let me know. I know you are, because you guys have been so great talking to me. I love talking to you. Thank you for visiting me with me. Thank you for spending another Raw Observations where we did the deep dive into the editor-in-chiefs of Marvel Comics from 1975 all the way up to uh, mid-2000s. Man, did we cover some ground. You guys, take care of yourself. There will be another Rob Observations shortly. Look out for it on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld with the blue check. Look for me there. At, on Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Blue check. Look for me there. At Rob Liefeld Instagram. At Robert Liefeld Twitter. Find me on social media. I'm all over the place. Celebrate comics, read a good comic, take care of yourself, take care.